1: In this episode, guest hosted by award-winning author David Collins, we visit with award-winning author Alex George, author of The Paris Hours. This book is set in one day in the city of light and one night in search of lost time. Paris Between the Wars teems with artists, writers, and musicians, a glittering crucible of genius, but amidst the dazzling creativity of the city's most famous citizens, four regular people are each searching for something they've lost. Lauren for New York Times bestselling author of The City of Light and After the Fire and recipient of the National Jewish Book Award, says this about the book. Unfolding over the course of one day in 1927 in a city whose citizens remained traumatized by the devastation of World War I, The Paris Hours is a thrilling, irresistible marvel. In lyrical prose, author Alex George weaves together memory, loss, and yearning, portraying his characters with such vivid immediacy that I can imagine myself walking beside them along the winding streets of Paris, sharing their stories, riveting, heartbreaking, and compassionate. The Paris Hours continues to haunt me. My name is Landis Wade, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here with us today. You can find out more about me at my author website, landiswade.com and I'd love to have you visit. For all things related to the podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a lot of great resources there. We have show notes of every episode with pictures of the authors, photographs of their book covers, links to their websites and social media, and more. And we have the community blog there. It's a collection of readerly and writerly content provided by writers in the community and authors who've been on the show. And you can sign up for the book report at our website charlottereaderspodcast.com. We send it out every two weeks. It's free. We don't spam you. That takes way too much time. We just keep you updated on what's going on with the podcast, provide a dose of inspiration, provide some free content from time to time, some links and other fun stuff related to the uh, reading and writing world we're a proud member of the queen city podcast network and the authors on the air global radio network a collection of author hosted podcasts putting out uh, this kind of content to a worldwide audience and you can find us pretty much anywhere you like to listen to your podcast you can also check out our patreon page that's patreoncom coms forward slash charlotte readers podcast this is a place where we provide exclusive content uh, for our supporters for just a few dollars a month, we provide access to exclusive audio interviews between me and authors who have appeared on the show, where they share their wisdom about uh, writing and the business of writing. It's a great way to get a good education if you're a lifelong learner like I am. But enough with this prologue. Let's meet today's author. Now, as I said, listeners, this episode is guest hosted by David Collins, uh, which we'll call Dave for today. And as part of our guest host series, uh, Dave was on the podcast to talk about his book, Accidental Activist, uh, Mark Ferris, Vic Holmes and Their Fight for Marriage Equality in Texas. It was a book chosen as a finalist for an Indies Best Book Award. And you can listen to that episode on the podcast feed or com. And and before I turn it over to Dave to start the uh, interview today, uh, I want to note that Alex George is a writer, a bookseller, a, a director of a literary festival, and he's a lawyer too, like me. He's I guess he's still practicing. I'm recovering. He's practicing. But anyway, he uh, he presently lives in the Midwest. And we'll talk on that Patreon episode about independent bookstores and festivals because he's involved uh, in both. So stay tuned for that. I'll tell you more about that at the end. But now I'm actually taking the podcast reins and I'm handing them over to Dave Collins to, for Dave to welcome Alex to the show.
0: Thank you very much, Landis. And and Alex, indeed, welcome. I'd like to begin by seconding uh, Landis's uh, estimate of uh, the Paris Hours as thrilling, irresistible marvel. That seems to me to sum it up very nicely. Uh, the last time you and I sat down to talk about uh, books and writing and life, uh, we had food before us at Sycamore. Uh, and we had a, a great old time and then finally went over to the Skylock bookstore to uh, look at some of the books we talked about, uh, we don't have good food in front of us today, but I hope we can kind of recreate a little bit of the energy of that uh, my my lunch with Andre or in this case uh, my lunch with Alex <laughs> <laughs> moment, uh, I guess you could say. Uh, I'm to begin sure with, will. <laughs> could
2: you
0: could you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, about your your history in Paris, about what it is that led you to uh, want to write a novel that was set in Paris?
2: Yeah, I of course, and and first of all, just it's great to see you again, Dave. You're right; it's not quite the same as sitting in front of you with a uh, one of those amazing pork sandwiches from Sycamore uh, on my plate, but uh, almost as good, almost as good. So, um, Paris has long been a source of fascination for me, as I know it has been for you as well. Um, I. Uh, went to school there. In fact, when I was 13 years old, Um, my parents had had enough of me. And so they sent me to a boarding school uh, in a place called Pontoise, which is just in a suburb of Paris. Um, And then when I was in my early 20s, I worked there as a a lawyer. Um, And so I know the place pretty well. And it's a a place that I love to go back to. And um, one of the things about writing books as you know is that it affords the opportunity to travel uh even if you don't actually ever leave your your house because uh, you can go there in the imagination and so one of the reasons why I always wanted to write about Paris was for that purpose so I could um I could go and uh whether it was doing research, whether it was actually telling my own story and effectively wander around the streets in my head. And occasionally I would I would write something on, on social media and I'd say, right, I'm off to Paris. Uh, and I, what I was doing was sitting down at five o'clock in the morning <laughs> to write my book. And then I would get lots of comments going, oh, you lucky thing. Oh, I wish I was going. Then I had to explain that, no, actually... I wasn't actually going to Paris I was just just going there in my imagination so it was a, it was a tremendous joy to uh to write the story and also to do the research as well which isn't always the case <laughs> sometimes research is is, a, is is an immense pain uh but but a, a necessary evil but in this particular instance um I I had a wonderful time doing that uh, although the story of the research is is an interesting one in and of itself because I When I began writing the book, I thought I was going to tell a very different story. And and the the origins of the book, I can trace quite specifically back to a particular Wednesday evening. And I know that it was a Wednesday because I had just finished my uh, weekly ritual humiliation on the indoor soccer pitch um, uh, with a team that I used to play on. And I I sort of hobbled back to my car and turned on the the radio as I drove home. And it's it's tuned to the local NPR station that plays classical music. And there was this wonderful piece of music playing that finished while I was still driving home. And it was by Ravel. And the announcer was explaining the provenance of the piece and how it had been commissioned by um, uh, this Russian impresario, Serge Diagliev. And he went on to describe the extraordinary team of creative geniuses that Diaghilev had um assembled around him. Uh, he was the he he began uh les ballets Russes, this 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 um innovative um and transformational uh, dance troupe uh, and he had people like uh Marc Chagall would paint the backdrops. Um uh, Coco Chanel would design the costumes and then Ravel and Stravinsky would write the music. I mean, my my brain was just blown apart when I sort of learnt all of this. And I and I thought, I sat there in my car in my sweaty soccer clothes and thought, oh, well, this is my next book. I'm going to write a story about uh, Serge Diagliev. And you will have noticed that uh, <laughs> Serge Diagliev does not appear in my novel. So... Um, uh, cause I had a slight change of heart. So I, 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 but, but that was where I started thinking about Paris in the 1920s. And I dived in and I, and I read a ton of critical stuff and biographies and social histories. Uh, and then I sat down and wrote a completely different story, um, because I realized that, well, I began to question whether or not, um, I was ever going to be able to do justice to that collective genius uh, uh, and and um that was a concern, and then I also began to question whether or not <laughs> it was really necessary and you know i mean if you if you listen to a Ravel melody, I mean the art speaks for itself, you don't actually need someone like me to come along a uh, hundred years later to try and tell you anything about it, so I decided to redraw the focus away from those lives uh, and to tell four very different stories. Um, And I think that by nature, I'm drawn to quieter stories anyway. And so I decided to tell um, these four stories of, if you like, ordinary people. Uh, And there are still um, well-known characters who populate the, the novel, but they're very much on the periphery rather than at its heart. Um, so it was it was been an interesting journey in that respect. And it, it was not the, the story that I thought I was going to tell.
0: i It was a story I very much enjoyed, in part because of the the, the cameos by those people. Uh, you know, we've got everybody, Ravel, Proust, Josephine Baker, Sidney Bechet, Gertrude Stein, Sylvia Beach, Pauline Pfeiffer, Hemingway, Dos Passos. I mean, it's a kind of a dazzling array uh, and uh, I'm in, in a way I'm glad that you uh, you steered clear of them. And when you steer into them, sometimes uh, your opinions of them are a little bit uh, diminishing, shall we say? <laughs> Particularly Hemingway, who doesn't fare very well at
2: all. Uh, he 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 doesn't. And more than one person have has asked me that, what do you have against Hemingway? And the answer is nothing, <laughs> nothing. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure that he wasn't especially nice person all of the time but I I have nothing against him whatsoever but you know my job as a writer is to tell a story that is um entertaining uh and as well as you know hopefully reflecting the historical record at least to a degree um and so you know I had some fun with it all I mean there was so the, the the story is set in 1927 and by then um Hemingway you know this is rather monstrous ego of his um was Continually clashing, uh, clashing heads with Gertrude Stein, who had an equally large uh, ego, um, and and in an earlier draft, I had the two of them being quite friendly, and then I realised that by then, no, that actually wouldn't have been appropriate, and they would have been sort of squabbling rather more. So there is a scene set in Shakespeare and Company, and the two of them are, are talking, and um, and I sort of, and I, I moved it. From just talking to bickering, which I think probably would have been more more appropriate, given given where they were at that particular time. So it was it was fun. I enjoyed I enjoyed doing that. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, people are always going to have have opinions about my opinions, but there you are.
0: The people at the center of your novel as it exists now, the four people, Soren Balakian, uh, a refugee from Armenia, uh, Guillaume Blanc, a ne'er-do-well painter who's struggling for success, Jean-Paul Maillard, uh, a journalist you know, who has uh, a troubled history having lost his wife and uh, he thinks his daughter, Camille Cl- Clermont, who... Uh, uh, is was, was a kind of a, a maid for a Marcel Proust. They're a fascinating bunch in their in their own right. And I'm I'm so glad you settled on them. I'm wondering how you picked those four. And um to a certain extent, I guess, whether or not you would auditioned other characters before you settled on them, why are they the best ones to take you through this story?
2: Well, what a good question. And the answer is, of course, you never really know uh, quite how you land on particular characters and why they come to the forefront. I mean, the 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 one that I can I mean, and each of them has their own sort of origin story, if you like. So uh Camille uh is very much based on Marcel Proust's real life maid, whose name was Celeste Albaray. And she was the first one to sort of fall into place. And I was um reading as part of that research, when I thought I was going to write that other book, I read a memoir that she wrote, which is just called Monsieur Proust. Um, and it's about her life with with Proust and looking after him uh, as he was writing his, his masterpiece. And a lot of the details in the novel are taken from that memoir. And I read, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of pages of biography about Proust, but that was the most intimate and the most personal and had all the good juicy things that a novelist is always looking for when trying to tell a story. So I began with her. And one of the um, episodes that she talks about uh, in this memoir is being asked to burn these, these 32 notebooks. And when I read that, uh, I mean, I was—I mean, I'm—I'm I'm the sort of person who, after I've written a paragraph, is is insistently pressing Command S and like saving everything. So, you know, the idea about just burning 32 notebooks just gave me some severe connexions in the first place. But uh, but immediately I thought, well, that that's something that you know I want to put into a book. I mean, as as novelists. I always say that we're, we're like magpies we're forever flying around looking for bright shiny objects uh to pick up and put in our stories and that was one of those and I immediately thought well yes there's a that's a good thing and so then from there you sort of I began to think thought think about well okay so what if she didn't burn them all and what if she kept one for herself and then what if there was something in that notebook that had Ramifications that that something that everybody thought had been destroyed was not destroyed, and so from that seed, really, everything else sort of grew. So that was that was her story, and then Soren Belakian's story um, is entirely different uh, genesis, and that was um, again going back to the magpie when I lived in London. Um, Uh, I uh, I was an attorney there in a large law firm, and I I had a trainee whose name was Rafi Verugian, which is about as Armenian a name as you can have, I think. And he and I became good friends, and we both suffered from a common affliction, which was a a lifelong um, love of Arsenal football club. Uh, And we used to go um, outside of work every other Saturday to watch our team play. Uh, in the English Premier League. And before we did that, we were going to have a pint of beer in a pub somewhere. And during those drinks, Rafi told me um, about his Armenian heritage and in particular about the atrocities that were visited upon his people back in in 1915 um, by the Turks and the campaign that is still ongoing to have those atrocities uh, uh, recognised as genocide. And I just never forgot that story. And uh, one of the things, one of the great privileges of being a novelist is the ability to shine uh, a little light uh, on stories and things that you think are important and that, that, that sort of strike, to speak to you and strike you in the heart. And I always thought, well, I would love one day to, to write about that. But I never found the right vehicle for it um, until... I suddenly found myself contemplating a novel set in the 1920s in Europe, and I suddenly thought, this is what I can do. I can bring this character and have him escape the the genocide and arrive in France, and we can tell that story, and then we can tell the story that he has once he arrives in Paris. So that was where he came from. Um, The other two, somewhat more nebulous, Um, I mean, I thought Guillaume... Uh, I just felt that if you're telling a story set in, in 1920s Paris, you've got to have a painter uh, because that that's a lot of what people think about. They think about Park and they think about Picasso and all of these people. So I wanted to have a painter there, but um, not a very good one. Uh, and so he sort of knew all of those people, but was very much on the periphery of that on the outside looking in and probably a little jealous with it too. Um, and then when it came to Jean-Paul, I mean... As a writer myself, I am interested in writing about writers, um, and so that was sort of where that that idea came from, and where that character came from.
0: I was wondering uh, about that. That was a follow up question I had. If you had a particular affection for Jean Paul, uh, and, and, and it seems you do, as a writer writing about, it, are, are any of his opinions yours? That's. <laughs> Uh, He has some opinions about America and Americans and uh, (laughs) uh, Americans going to Paris to seek uh, redemption and new selves and so on and so forth.
2: A little bit. I mean, you know, he loves America, and I love America. I mean, uh, you know, I've lived here for 18 years now, and I'm not going home. So, um, you know, I so unlike him, I actually made it over here, which uh, so I guess I should consider myself fortunate. Um, But I think that a lot of the things that he his thoughts about it are ones that I share, particularly, you know, he talks about, um, or he thinks about how many Americans believe that by moving country, you can somehow escape your demons. Um and that is not the case. Uh geography is not a salve. Uh you know, you're still going to be the same person when you arrive in the new place as you were in the old place. Um and that that certainly, you know, speaking as somebody who is who um you know lifted up his life and his family and moved four thousand miles into the middle of a different country i i can still feel i can speak to that with some authority i'm still the same person i was before so um so those sorts of those sorts of things for sure yes absolutely those are uh, they came from the heart
0: it's uh, it's interesting that his his comments on not being able to escape the past almost become a kind of commentary on of the fate of Soren. um who uh, clearly can't escape his, uh, his past; that uh, it haunts him every day, and ultimately, in a certain sense, uh, catches up with him. Uh, I guess
2: it does, and I think that. But it applies really to all four, uh, all four of the characters. And you, we we mentioned Proust before, and the the most usual translation of his novel is "In Search of Lost Time," um, and that could, in many ways, be taken as the sort of the the a, a sub title uh, for the book as a whole, because I think all four of these characters are looking backwards, back to earlier rosier times, um, and all four of them in their different ways are discovering that there is no going back.
0: Something that Landis picked up very nicely, I think, in his introduction uh, to the podcast today. I wonder if if this would be a good point to, to pause and ask you to, to do a brief reading from the novel, so that we could get a bit of a flavour of the
2: prose. Absolutely. So I'm going to read from very near the beginning of the book. So we've talked about these four characters, and we're uh, all the way through the book until the very last chapter. Um, the the story is told in strict rotation, so we have each character in turn, um, and. What I'm going to read is from the first time that we meet Jean-Paul, in fact, the person who we were just just talking about, uh, the, um, the writer who uh, has a love affair with America. And um, this uh, chapter is called Rhapsody. Jean-Paul Maillard closes his eyes and dreams of America. The needle touches the spinning vinyl with the gentlest sigh of Static. He listens, spellbound. That clarinet, the first low trill, fat with promise, and then the solo sent to the heavens, soaring smoothly through the registers. By the time that ecstatic high note, limpid and beautiful, pours into his ears, Jean-Paul has made his escape. He sweeps through the open window onto the rue Barbette and hurtles down the cobbled streets of the Marais, streaking westward across the city. In a moment, he is flying over the dark waters of the Atlantic. The music beckons him on. He soars high over the city's skyscraped silhouette, his for the taking. He hears the rumble of the Harlem bound A train in the orchestra's propulsive rhythms, low and sweet. He hears new worlds and the piano's blistering arpeggiated attacks. Images streak past like the onrushing traffic hurtling down the arrow straight avenues. Perfect lines of shimmying, high-kicking chorus girls, their cherry-red lips glistening in the spotlights. A livery doorman striding onto the busy street, his hand outstretched for a yellow cab. Elegant matrons pushing through the door at Bergdorf's. Sharp-dressed men with two-toned shoes, hats pulled down low, huddled close on the street corner. When Jean-Paul Maillard dreams of America, he dreams of New York City. But those dazzling syncopations do not last forever. The music ends and the spell is broken. Reluctantly, Jean-Paul opens his eyes. America has retreated as it always does and his shabby French apartment remains. He looks around. The place used to be so bright and tidy, so clean. Now every surface is coated with a patina of ancient dust. The wallpaper is staging a slow escape from the walls. A dark brown stain has annexed a corner of the ceiling. The gramophone is still going around. The silence is gently punctuated by the soft rhythmic bump of the needle against the spinning vinyl, as regular as a tiny heartbeat. He does not get up to switch it off. He likes the sound. Jean-Paul looks at the dim morning light creeping across the apartment window. It's been years since he has slept through the night. In the early hours of every morning, his ruined leg drags him from sleep. Then he sits in his armchair, listens to George Gershwin and thinks about the lights of Manhattan.
0: That is a beautiful passage indeed. And, and I, I, your, your reading of it was, uh, was exquisite. It, it it reminds me of course, of something you mentioned just a few minutes ago that in a certain sense, the Paris hours begin with you listening to Ravel on the radio and listening to a discussion after that, uh, that passage, you know, uh, which focuses on the way, um, music can carry us away to, to places undreamed of, uh, uh, and, and, you know, that, I don't know respect for admiration of love of the the arts uh, is is all through the Paris hours you know Soren is a puppeteer he's a man of the theater and you know as, as I as I read your descriptions about the kind of puppet plays he does in a language that the children listening to him can't understand. Uh, and the nature of those shows much darker than what children would usually get made me, made me think about, you know, uh, about what we want uh, from, from theater like that. We almost, of course, a painter. And, but most of all in the book, for me, it's the music, you know, you've just read that beautiful passage about uh, Gershwin, um, you know, uh, we have, of course, Sydney Bechet at the end and the scene of Le Chablon. Uh, but most of all, it seems to me, we have Ravel. Um, Soren awakens uh, early in the book, uh, listening to a piano a uh, player downstairs who turns out to be Maurice Ravel. Uh, and, and you know, you have a beautiful description of that uh, piece there that goes on for five or six paragraphs again. And then that same description is repeated word for word uh, when um, Jean-Paul uh, awakens after being wounded at the Battle of Ypres. Uh, the only difference being a change in tense. It slips into the past tense in that second repetition there. Uh, would you... T- Talk a little bit about uh, incorporating the other arts uh, into a novel, uh, in particular, uh, for my benefit, at least as a writer who aspires to do this, um, you know, uh, ways to write about the other arts that, that bring them forward, uh, ways that make you feel the music the way you, you make me feel it when I read the Paris Hours.
2: Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head, David, it's all about feeling. Um, you know one of the challenges of writing about other media other arts in 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 the, a medium that is just words on a page is that the challenge is that you don't have the tools available to you to really convey uh what the music actually sounds like so we have to rely on metaphor um and that is really hard, but it's also a challenge. And when you get it right, it can be quite rewarding. So I very much, you know, the the and the piece that I uh, describe uh, that you were so kind to <laughs> talk about, um, you know, it, it's actually the, the way that it's described in the book is not how it exists in the real world. It's actually the third movement of the Ravel piano trio, which is I think, my favorite piece of music of all time. And it's a gorgeous, dark, dark piece with this low cello and and this high violin. And um, and I sort of, in my head, translated it all into a solo piano piece. Um, And all I did, I remember very clearly where I was when I wrote that. And uh, very unusually for me, I actually sat down with a pencil And a piece of paper and some headphones and I listened to the piece on repeat and I just wrote down impressions and thoughts and words as they occurred to me Uh, and I must have listened to it and I know the piece by heart anyway of course but I must have listened to it five or six times uh, just again and again and again and really immersing myself in the piece Um, and I arrived at the end of that process with Lots and lots of pieces of paper with words on them, uh, and then I sort of knitted them together in a way that, at the end of it, I would read it and go, "Well, that's working for me," <laughs> because that's all you can—that's all you can do in the end—is to. Uh, I mean, I don't know what what that description is going to do for anybody else. I do know that it has sent people to the Ravel piece, uh, which thrills me. Uh, lots of people have written to me and have said, well, because of this, I have now gone to listen to the Ravel and, and I love it. And it was gorgeous. And that makes me very happy. Um, but it's, you know, I, it, it's a challenge to do. And that's one of the reasons why I do it. And it, it, that applies to music, I think in particular, um, and again, with Sidney Bechet, you know, I loved writing about his performance in the, the Chabron at the end, um, but it's a very different kind of a feel that you're trying to do there. What well, I was trying to do there than I was when I was trying to convey the emotion of the of the Ravel piece, um, and similarly with the Gershwin. You know, there's a different. I mean, music. One of the things it does, of course, is to it, it creates emotions in uh, in 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 the listener. And you know, it, as I said before, it, everyone has different emotions and different responses to these things. So all I can do is to is to reflect. Reflect what I feel. Uh, so that was that was fun. I, I enjoyed doing that. And I've always enjoyed writing about music. For me, what was different this time was I also wrote about um painting too, um, and Guillaume, and there's one painting in particular that that sort of keeps cropping up in the book. Uh, and that was a very interesting uh but very different kind of a uh an exercise for me because there. There was no metaphor i was actually describing the picture on the uh on the canvas but where the imagination came in was that i made up the picture <laughs> so it was i was i was employing a different bit of my sort of creative brain i suppose um uh, and that and a lot of people have asked me so well where did all that stuff come from and the answer is i have no idea i mean there's there i really some of the little details that 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 cropped up while i was describing that picture just came out of left field and and it's one of those things you don't ask too many questions about you just like put it down and move on and don't ask too many questions so uh yeah it's it's i i love writing about that stuff i mean i think that you know art is the the fuel for so much of uh, of an, uh, a rich uh and fulfilling life and so it makes sense to me that uh even these people who are struggling with with so much loss and so many other things they find uh, sanctuary and solace in those things so uh, i very much wanted to write about it
0: i i you know when when i think of that that painting the thing that sticks in my mind is the blue door which is totally out of place yes <laughs> um, and it, it's it's the sort of thing that I, I think I might invent as well, although I can't do it now since you've done it. <laughs> <laughs> you are very specific about Paris. Um, you know, you you, you mentioned uh, in your, your general uh, introduction here, uh, the amount of research that you did in various and sundry places and ways for this. And of course, some of this, I don't suppose, is research. You've got your own uh, knowledge of Paris to, to fall back on. But when you write about Paris, you're very specific about locations. You know, we know that Jean-Paul lives on the Rue Barbette. Uh, we know that Camille Clermont's hotel is on the Rue des Canettes. Uh, uh, we know where where Proust lives. You know, when you trace a walk that Soren takes when he's following the two Armenian men, you follow him as he crosses the river and, and walk with him up the Rue du chachy and follow him all the way uh, up to uh, Sylvia Beach's book, bookshop there, you know. Um, did you ever worry when you were writing those passages or, or you know, um, exhibiting your, your knowledge of Paris that you would lose readers who didn't know Paris so well as
2: you? Few do. No, that actually never occurred to me. Um, all I wanted to do was to get to get that stuff right. Um, so, you know, one of my um, bookmarks on my uh, web browser for years and years was the uh, the Paris Google Maps. <laughs> and I would just go in and make sure that when I was having uh, whoever, like Jean-Paul, when he walks from uh, Père Lachaise and goes down into the middle of town, I just wanted to make sure that I was going to make him go through the right streets and things like that. I... I I wanted to put the details in with some of those things, but hopefully they were never gratuitous. It was always there was a purpose in mind. When I was naming streets, there was usually a reason for it. Like, for example, the thing about Le Chaki Pêche, I can't quite remember what I said, but there was there was there was a there was a remark that was sort of associated with it about people fishing. Um, That's right. Yeah. So, so it was more to do with I was trying to as I say, most importantly, to get it right, to get the sort of topography correct. And so if you go down the street and turn right, then you're not going to, you need to be where you're supposed to be. Um, But it was more a question of just creating an atmosphere. Um, And it's, you know, it's writing about Paris. And, you know, you, I think, have probably read more than just about anybody uh, about Paris. And and I know that you have your extraordinary catalogue of books uh, uh, set there. Um, But it's a real challenge because um, everybody thinks that they know about Paris. And um, when you are writing about it, I think there's a balance that needs to be struck between giving the readers something new and unexpected, but also giving them enough of what they know or of what they think they know so that there's the familiar there as well. Uh, and that's a that's a an occasionally difficult balance to strike. Um and so a lot of what I was doing was my best and just just trying to do that. Uh I mean I did make a decision very early on that I was going to keep the action away from the more obvious um landmarks. So we don't see the Arc de Triomphe, the, the Eiffel Tower is there, but always in the distance and always looked at somewhat wryly by the the citizens of the town who are still scratching their head about it in 1927 they're not quite sure what to make of it um but it, hopefully that was enough to um to, to to give us to 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 posit the reader uh in the place but also there's enough mystery uh, uh that that they're, they're still bewitched by it as well mm
0: mm-hmm to me the names of those streets are like a kind of magic incantation you know they they summon up all kinds of associations um my guess would be that even if you are not so familiar with paris they still have something of that effect you know they're 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 like a, a contemporary equivalent of saying abracadabra or or something to that effect
1: so i'm going to jump in uh, folks i've been fascinated by this interview and, and the book as well um before i tell you what we're going to do next with uh With Dave and uh, Alex, Uh, I just have a, you know, I I teased out at the beginning that uh, in addition to being all these other things, uh, Alex is a, lawyer so i have to ask this question um, uh, alex you've you've, uh, you've written this very you've written this very you've written this very literary prose I and mean, coming as a lawyer myself at this i'm just wondering uh, what did you have to unteach yourself to accomplish this task
2: <laughs> well so so i i i am still practicing law for my sins uh, and i do i do corporate law and estate planning uh, so I don't litigate, and I think I saw that you're—you said you're a recovering trial lawyer. So you and I have very different different ways of thinking about these things. But when I draft documents, uh, whether it's a trust or whether it's a sale purchase agreement, my main job is to make sure that there are zero ambiguities and zero chance for anyone to be unclear about what is supposed to happen. Uh, and I've been doing that for. 25 years now so i kind of and i'm so i like to think i'm quite good at it but in a funny sort of way so it's like the so writing a novel is like the absolute reverse of that in that what you're trying to do is rather as we were just saying about sort of casting spells and 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 setting the reader free to roam the streets of paris even if they haven't been there before is that you're trying to like light these little fires and then let the reader's imagination go off in all sorts of different directions, which you can't control. So it's, it's like one is the antithesis of the other. Um, so, you know, I, and I, I think that that's kind of, that's always been my, my, my answer. It's, it's kind of like, it's more knowing what not to do. Well, listen, uh, I want to thank, uh,
1: for, first of all, listeners, we're going to jump over to our Patreon channel at dot com forward slash charlotte readers podcast all one word and uh dave and i together are going to talk uh more with alex we're going to talk about uh this thing called independent bookstores and book festivals and uh because he's connected to both and uh but first i want to thank dave first of all thanks for leading this great discussion today dave
0: most welcome landis uh,
1: and uh, alex thanks for being a part of charlotte readers podcast of course it was a
2: real pleasure thanks for having me
1: that's it for today another fine author giving voice to the written words you can subscribe to this podcast for free at apple podcast stitcher spotify iheart radio and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on